Hey everyone, welcome to the Influencer Economy Podcast. This week's episode is supported by Truemaker, a new menswear brand that combines ruggedly refined original designs with a modern approach to made-to-measure clothing. You'll never have to go to the mall again or worry about finding your size online. Sign up for an appointment at truemaker.com and one of their expert outfitters will come to you when and where you want to for a simple, casual 30-minute fitting. Then they'll measure you for your shirts and blazers that are built to fit you, only you, It's also easy to reorder more perfectly fitting gear at truemaker.com. That's T-R-U-M-A-K-E-R.com. And make sure you mention as a friend of the show, Influencer, when you sign up to get a free gift with your first order. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is your host, Ryan Williams. Excited for episode number 26. My guest this week is Lance Ulanoff. He's the chief correspondent and editor-at-large of Mashable.com. Lance acts as a senior member of the editing team and focuses on defining internal and curated opinion content. It was phenomenal to have Lance on the show. Three things that you'll learn from this episode are how journalists like Lance use Vine, Twitter, and other social media tools to tell stories, the importance of having a personal brand in social media as well as how news works at Mashable, what it's like covering Apple events, including the iPhone launches that they've had recently in years. I want to thank Lance one more time. He was an amazing guest, really excited that he came on. Make sure you check him out at Lance Yulanoff on Twitter. And I love hearing from everyone. I've gotten some great feedback the last few weeks on the show. So please keep emailing me. Influencereconomy at gmail.com is the address. And you can find me on Twitter or leave a comment um, on the iTunes store. Without further ado, please welcome Lance Yulanoff. So, Lance Yulnoff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are things in, uh, in New York City? Well, right now, kind of gray, cloudy. <laughs> Feels like impending doom because we're about to go from some pretty comfortable weather to some pretty horribly cold weather. Not happy. <laughs> and uh, can you please introduce yourself to uh, the audience and what your role is at Mashable and what you're up to with the work you do? So I'm Lance Yulinoff, and I'm chief correspondent and editor-at-large at Mashable. Um, I work on a lot of the major stories, especially in the tech arena. Uh, I will be involved with the editorial team and offer them and sometimes insight and guidance on other stories that they're doing. Um, I'm focused uh, on new ways of you know, new forms of storytelling, especially through social media. Um, we'll try and both be a leader and sometimes a guide in that area and will offer analysis and commentary on the site and sometimes help people craft those pieces uh, as well. Uh, have you been traveling a lot? I saw you were in San Francisco recently. Yeah, I mean, I did uh, I did two, almost felt like back-to-back trips because it was one month after the other because Apple um, unveiled, obviously, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus in September. I went out for that. Then I was home for a couple of weeks. Maybe it was... I guess it was a month, and then I was back out in San Francisco for a pro- kind of a shorter trip for the, the iPad Air 2 and uh, Mini 3. And you, you travel consistently? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like I have a real schedule. It's sort of like when the events happen or when I get a call, and sometimes I can't always do it. For example, I was uh, had this opportunity to go out to Seattle um, for a cool Microsoft meeting, but I already had a speaking engagement plan, so I had to beg off. But usually, I'm I'm pretty ready to go, and uh, 
you know, it's, it tends to be a lot of San Francisco. It'll be Vegas um, in, uh, in January for CES, and it'll be Austin for South by Southwest in March. And, and then, um, you know, then it becomes kind of a hodgepodge of different events that may or may not happen and I may or may not attend. And what's it like covering an Apple event, like with the iPad mini that just came out? Well, I would say actually the, the better example would be the, the iPhone because that was so intense um, at every level. Most of these events and, and with the iPhone launch, it was without a doubt the biggest product launch of the year. We knew it would be and it lived up to it. We had a fairly small team you know, out there. It was just, uh, it was just me and one other person. And I'm sorry, that we, we ended up with three, me, a uh, videographer and another reporter and we were just you know you have to really have your game face on because you have the expectation is that from the moment you arrive uh, till all is said and done you will be delivering a steady stream of information and visuals and that's what I try and do so you know you you can be in a situation where you're live tweeting and you're, you're or you're live blogging. And you feel like you're just sitting there sweating because you're just trying to do all these things at once. Um, so it's uh, and it was there was a level of um, sort of fun this time because the Apple folks were amped up in a kind of unusual way. Sometimes they can get a little dour and serious and feel very locked down, but. I think there was a sense of relief and excitement because they felt like they had some good stuff and they were going to actually surprise people and they were doing it in a different spot. So everything very felt really fresh and interesting. Uh, so it was a good event. The second event I went to was, was good, but it was definitely more low-key. It was much smaller. Uh, the innovation wasn't as great. So, you know, definitely felt a little different. And so when the... How long have you been covering Apple as a journalist? Um, I would say really been looking at them and writing about them since probably 2000, 2001 or two. Uh, you know, I was, I covered them on and off in the 90s, but not as intently. It was sort of, they were one of many. We knew they were, they were interesting and important, but they were really not, you know, 91 through 97, obviously, they were, they were not that strong. Yeah. Uh, we would certainly look at them and we'd look at their products, but, you know, really changed, obviously, in this century. So that's amazing. And that was, was that in the 90s when you were working with PC Mag? Yeah. Okay. And then did you ever get the uh, opportunity to, to meet Steve Jobs? No, I stood in, I was in the room with him probably once or twice during an event, uh, especially toward the end of his life. I always remember seeing him shuffle into the room, the demo room, and he was, not everybody realized he was there, and I caught sight of him and you know, grabbed a quick picture, but never had the opportunity to actually speak directly to him. And how, how does it compare now um, that he's... He's no longer uh, that he passed, you know, with Tim Cook, as far as the events go, because he was notorious or at least the regime I've read about with media was that it was very controlled and and locked down. It was, you know, Katie Cotton was the head PR person um, and she ran a super tight ship and 
I feel like, and I've known a lot of the PR people for a long time, I just feel like they're maybe opening up to new ideas uh, and that they also understand that while in 2007 they could really control the message, that it's virtually impossible to do that now. And, you know, when you arrive at an, an Apple event, there's much that you already know. Um, you know, you've got people walking out of factories in China and taking prototypes with them and sharing them with other people. So they've had to change their approach. Um, and so it feels a little bit different. Uh, and, and while they're changing to a certain extent, their competition is adopting some of their old playbook, you know, doing some of the secretive stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, and it, but I still think that at the very core, the principles uh, that the company applied to its product design, creation, marketing, sales has remained fairly consistent. Apple doesn't tend to play other people's games, and I'm not one who actually agrees with the idea that, oh, the fact they made a larger phone is that they decided they wanted to copy Samsung because Samsung had made some inroads. I think that Apple tends to look at the market, and when they feel that there is an identifiable opportunity for, for a new market, uh, and that they believe they can bring something either special or better or consistent or smarter than the competition, then they will do so. Do you, do you have a memory, like in the early 2000s, this century, when you realized that Apple was just bringing it in a way, like through one of their events or through when you were writing about them? Well, you know, we, we all knew that the, the iPod had sort of solved the, the, the MP3 uh, player question. We had seen a lot of dogs, but I would say it wasn't until the iPhone came along and I was not at the event and I was not one of the chosen few to get a product, but there was a palpable excitement around this product that I had not really experienced or seen before. And I remember running into Ed Baig at, who works for USA Today and is a friend, at a product event, some other event. And I glanced over and saw him holding the iPhone and I just froze and then my my something took over I dashed over to him and I started talking to him I said Ed can I hold it and he let me and I spent probably 10 minutes with it and I immediately went back home and turned it into a story and I was like and I knew instinctively that this was going to be a massive hit because everybody was desperate to know about it and I think that that was sort of this realization that all right, Apple's doing something different here. People feel differently about their products. There's something, I hate to use the word magical, but certainly there's a kind of alchemy that seemed to occur when they were building you know, products in the exact same category as other people and yet having completely different reactions. And so what, what's it like you know, when you're at one of these events, just as a journalist, you mentioned live tweeting earlier, and when you have deadlines for articles, like. How, how many hours are you putting in and what's what's it like actually trying to deliver content around these events? It doesn't, you know, deadlines are a funny thing now because there's just a rolling deadline. It's like, what can you deliver now? So the way I work is um, I really enjoy social media. I like... Uh, I, I, like saw you, I saw you just tweeted out the uh, Kim Kardashian magazine cover with, yes. with a comet. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. That is actually a, a creation of my own. Nice. Uh, 
but um, I, I enjoy delivering content to my audience through Twitter. Um, I enjoy Instagram. I enjoy Vine. So I will, especially with those events, I always say the same thing. I imagine that the audience is sitting on my shoulder and I want them to see it as I see it, see it through my eyes. So what, what interests me, what occurs to me, thoughts that I have about the event, you know, interesting uh, visuals, I will share it all. And, you know, the level of tweeting during those events, uh, all of it, it all goes up. You know, I break the rule, and I have some specific rules about tweeting, but I, you know, break the 10-minute rule where it becomes, it can become every minute, you know, it can be more depending on what's happening. So I'm doing that constantly. And then, you know, there's, you know, when you are at an Apple event and some of these other events, then you end up in the demo room and, you know, your job at that point is to, one, quick as quickly as possible, show people stuff through social media. And then two, give some analysis, um, you know, some, some deeper analysis of what it felt like to hold it, you know, how it functioned and the little time you had. So, you know, I'll quickly sit down and I did this at this event. I went, you know, to one of the areas where we had Wi-Fi and we could sit, grab some snacks and just start writing and work to deliver one, then two, probably three stories that day, um, whatever we thought was necessary. And then, you know, obviously there'd be a lot more content after that. And so, how, I mean, what's that like comparing it? Is it just hard to fathom what it was like in the 90s working with PC Mag, trying to, you know, you're writing, for, mm. you know, weekly or bi-weekly? It was just, there on it almost is no comparison. I was a, um, in the early 90s, I was a magazine editor. I had, uh, the magazine could be as many as 400 pages every two weeks. I managed features that could be 40 pages, 35, 40, 20 pages, depending on what it was. Uh, they could cover anywhere from 10 to, to 70 products, uh, you know, but it was usually, it was a big undertaking. So you had a two to three month lead time over, you know, over the upcoming issue, but you were working sort of, you know, after you're done with that issue, you're working on the next issue. So uh, you were pretty busy, but you didn't have real time deadlines. Like there was no idea of something happening today and telling the world about it right immediately. The internet came along during my tenure there and it was a different team. I wasn't even involved with it. Uh, although I was writing the stories about it, we did produce and I managed the how to build your own website story, which was one of the first ones. How to build your own website, that's amazing. Yeah, and it was like basic nuts and bolts. You know, there used to be a time when PC Mag was around uh, you know, as a magazine back in the early 90s that a lot of what we wrote ended up in textbooks. And that was a good example. That article ended up in textbooks. Um, but it was, you know, it was just different. But I knew, you know, I was super interested in the internet and partly because of networking on that story and having to teach myself the whole process and just knew, what, you know, that I could work at that pace, that I could do sort of the real-time stuff, which only became much more real-time over time because even in the early days of the internet, you still weren't working at that pace. What's a story that you've written that you think is a pretty pretty innovative way recently around uh, storytelling? Well, most of my stories, to, a lot to, of- To put you on the spot. <laughs> most of the stories that I do will include 
some kind of interest to me. I do a lot of Vine unboxing, so I have to review okay, a cool. fair number of products. And I reviewed both of the tablets, both the, the iPad Air 2 and the uh, iPad Mini 3. And so I created, which I had to queue up and save until it was the embargo lifted. I created a Vine, which showed them unboxing simultaneously. Now, I don't have my hands in there. It's an animation. So I have to do a little bit of time to move it and basically did it. And then even though it's only six seconds when you're doing animation, sometimes like, oh, I still have more time. I have more frames, basically. So I was like, well, what would be a cool, cool way to end this? So I'm like, well, what if they levitated out of the screen? And so I had to make that happen, like figure out how to make it look like that was happening without like lots of, with any, well, zero special effects. Um, so you're, you're Steven Spielberging it while you're uh, yeah. at it? Yeah. How, and then, so, and then, do you post that on Mashable's website as well as you know share yes. it? Yes, I embed I embed these these elements inside the article. So I would try and you know so that people can and if I can illustrate sometimes exactly how something is going to work through a Vine or an Instagram, I would. Well, uh, you know, so just try and have these other elements in there that can um, enhance visually enhance the story. And then uh, people are always asking advice about how they can grow a community on Vine. It sounds like you have a really unique approach to it, especially with unboxing in seven seconds. Um, what advice do you have? Like, what do you, what do you think you did well? Was it consistency or a unique, a unique approach to help, you know, grow an audience there? I do tend to have a level of consistency across all of my social platforms. So, for example, um, Instagram is something I really love, but I almost invariably use it to show beautiful images like it's about the photography it's not about news stories images on twitter are about news you know they're about telling a story um video is the outlier in instagram but that's kind of something different on vine initially i wasn't sure what to do with it six seconds seemed like nothing but as soon as i found out i could do animation well, that became very interesting to me because I'd actually been doing animation beforehand, old school method, and uh, so I was intrigued with the idea. And I just, you know, every time they put out a new tool on Vine, I would use it, and I would use it to improve what I was doing. And, you know, some of my best finds are, you know, I go into a room, I get special lighting, I use a tripod. You know, I think the more quality that you can put in your vines, the more um, they will be seen as high quality content. I don't always get it right, but I, you know, when I have the right tools at my disposal, I do. And I also used it to tell silly stories. I did one of my earliest vines, um, I did probably during the Oscars, maybe two years ago, right? Yeah, it must have been right at the beginning. Uh, and I took one of those drawing mannequins that you compose and had an iPad. And I basically had to do this whole thing where I wanted to take the place of the, the statue, the award statue. And I wrote a letter, and, and this is all in six seconds. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, so you can really do kind of fun things. So I think that's been recognized to a certain extent. I mean, I, have, I don't have a lot of followers on Vine. I guess I have, I don't know, I must have a few thousand or something like that. I haven't checked in a while. Um, so it's not a huge number, but uh, I think that the people who do follow me really enjoy. No, I've got four thousand. Really enjoy what I do. And how how important is it to have your own personality and to have your own community of people? Because when you went to Mashable, it was a big deal. 
you know, people were writing all about it in the tech press. And how, how valuable is it now to have your own voice as a journalist? Oh, it's important. You know, I recognized somewhere, somewhere along the way during the, the, the growth of social media that, that having a, a personal brand mattered. Now, I had a voice in that I was writing columns for years. And I would run into people every once in a while in the industry or just like on the periphery of it who would say to me, I love reading your column. I love, you know, what you say. And I, I was jazzed by that because, you know, it's, you don't get a lot of that feedback on print, but online you get a lot more. With, with social media, one of, when I created my Twitter account, I was initially Lulanoff. Now, I did that because almost every time I signed into anything, I would do my first initial and my last name. And I remember I hit 1,000 followers, and I asked my followers, I said, should I be Lance Ulanoff? On Twitter and every single one's like yes do it immediately so like all right so I changed it um, and I think that was actually really important because it was my brand identity so I am um, pretty specific about it um, I treat it with with a lot of care because I know that it's one it helps the brand I work for and obviously it helps me quite a bit and as far as you know you working in in a room with cameras, you know, you're you're investing a lot of time into platforms like Vine. How does that? How does the modern day newsroom uh, operate? And especially with you, you know, you're a, a lead correspondent, and you're in the front lines. But I imagine the transformation that you've seen from the newsroom of yesterday to now. You, we talked about it before. It's hard to even compare the two. Like, yeah. I mean, are, very, are, are people just pitching ideas and saying, "I'm going to do this." 10 second video and you just run with it? Like how, how do you decide which well, is the right? It's, you know, it's funny because a lot of times I hear from the staff that I'm one of the few editor reporters who really does a lot of social media content creation, pure social media content creation. Um, but more people are trying. But what you do see in the newsroom, where you see the impact of social media and how it's changed things is that you know, everybody is watching it for news tips, for, you know, curated, uh, trustworthy sources who are telling us real-time updates about important news. For example, watching the, the, the lander, you know, land on the comet, and then finding out from the, the European Space Agency that, oh, the harpoons may in fact have not shot into the, the comet surface. And we got that from Skype from them. And that becomes part of news, and everybody's watching that stuff. And then we're also, you know, we're delivering live tweets to our audience. You know, we have Mashable Live. We've created all of these accounts that help curate and deliver real-time news um, that is not even on the page, the website, but is on our social media accounts. So uh, we have a guy who's actually that's his job. Uh, so you know that nothing like that exists. I mean, it's just sort of from a visual standpoint. If you looked at a newsroom back in, uh, you know, a, a web or magazine newsroom back in, say, 95 through 99, uh, you'd see offices and cubes, high-walled cubes, um, people were working but not necessarily talking. Now, there are no walls. You know, there's some offices, but mostly the newsroom is just desks, and everybody is, is facing each other and talking. Um, it's very open because they know that we're delivering real-time information, that we're not just sort of working in our hovel and then weeks or months later, we'll deliver the finished product. 
it doesn't work that way. And you were saying earlier that there's like constant updates now. Yeah, we don't have, I mean, you'll we'll have, there are some feature stories where you'll have a bigger deadline or there are embargoes where you know that story is going to lift and you all work to that. But, you know, when you have a deadline on a product like the iPhone 6, I mean, it was actually a huge undertaking, cross-departmental undertaking. We did it as a big feature story. We did it with special design. We did it with all these components, these visual components, like so many things that went together. So everybody working together at the same time to create something that people can interact with live on the site. And, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, like what, what just, I'd love to know what you're, what do you miss? Because you, you say you love and you're excited about the current state of affairs, but what do you miss about writing for a magazine or doing 20 page features? Uh, next to nothing. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, I, I tend to, you know, I've used each thing in my career as a building block to help me do the next thing. So I don't really miss what I've done before. I don't miss the way things were. I tend to see a lot of what's happened as uh, positive change. Uh, and I worked on three different magazines, all of which are gone. Uh, one of which I actually shut down the print edition myself, but the other went out of business. Um, you know, I I believe in the written word. I don't believe in the longevity of the printed word. I think that at some point in the not too distant future, magazines will probably. Uh, probably newspapers will be a flexible sheet that you can refresh uh, so people can still have that feeling of physical paper but it won't be paper so I don't I don't get stuck on stuff you know it's funny I, I probably like nostalgia I don't get stuck on it um, I like that I was there to see it and be involved with it because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today without it but you know, I'm not like, oh, I wish I could do that again. I saw you interviewed Walt Mossberg, which I imagine, you know, you've been, I've been following him for a long time. I'm sure you have as well. How, how was that? And where is he in the landscape of, of media in, in your mind? Oh, that was great. He, he's great. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, and I think that he's just, he's one of those people who's super savvy, uh, hires some of the best people in the world. Uh, and uh, uses his respect and his um, position in the industry to his advantage. You know, I've been to D conferences. I was to the last Code conference. I'm always impressed. Uh, I think that they do a lot of things really well. They're covered a little bit more. They cover probably their focus is is narrower than Mashable, uh, which is really covering world news as well now. But um, you know, I think that um, Walt surrounds himself with, with savvy people who um, help him stay at the front lines. I don't know that Walt is as socially or digitally savvy as everyone else, but I think that that doesn't matter because his team is at least that much. And what, what Walt has is tremendous historical perspective. He always offers great context knows good products he's got good insight um uh really respect the guy and you know it was a big moment when he you know 
took the leap and took this company and made it something separate from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with Recode and going, you know, all in yeah. on his own. And what uh, what about your your William Shatner story? I've I've heard about this where he was referring to an article that you wrote with him. Yeah. Well. What was that? It sounded so, crazy. I don't know. If so, I, <laughs> you know, this is one of the great benefits of Twitter. I've met people whom I never thought I'd be talking to in real life in any way, all through Twitter, and and basically. He's very involved on Twitter. Um, we seem to connect through a third party on Twitter who is just this young woman. I actually don't, all I know is her handle. I don't know much about her except she's been very kind to me and friendly on Twitter. And so somehow my name got pulled in there. And the next thing I know, the, the, the middleman was pulled out and we were talk, talking to each other. Um, and he had, had some frustration. He can be very frustrated by some of the, the what seem to be um, arbitrary rules that exist on social media. And he had gotten into sort of a, a fracas online with someone else on Twitter. And I, I watched him kind of trying to defend himself. And I just said to him, I said to him on direct messaging, what if you could tell your own story on Mashable? And we came up with a way of him doing that um, so he could really do it in his own words. And um, I edited it, but without in any way removing his curmudgeonly voice. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's just a, he's he's truly engaged with this platform and social media. He really likes it. He sees the benefit. He doesn't like rulemaking. He you know, wants people to break down the walls. And um, I just feel very honored to even speak to him, you know, having truly grown up watching him on the screen for the last 40 years. So, uh, you know, it's just an odd thing to have these conversations with these people who I only knew through movies and TV shows. And now they're they're kind of real people to me. Uh, you know, that said, obviously, I've never met him in person. Uh, I think we tried to make that happen once and it has not. Uh, so, you know, and there's a number of people I know like that. I, you know, Alyssa Milano for, for a long time, we were talking on Twitter, never met him in person. And who are some other folks that you've, you've tweeted with and had conversations? Uh, LeVar Burton, whom I have met in person a number of times. Uh, uh, he's a really good guy. Uh, gosh just odd people there's this like psychic john edwards whom i sometimes connect with and it's just like an odd hodgepodge of people from you know different walks of life um uh you know and the fun thing about twitter so is i i, I enjoy sort of playing with the system a little bit because i like engaging with these people i'm kind of a movie and tv freak i love old films i love new movies you know and i, I you know stars and stuff. I was watching Cinderella Man the other night and I remarked on Twitter how um, Craig Burke oh, uh, he's, he plays like the antagonist of um, this box. Sorry, you're, uh, you, broke up, you, you broke up for one second. You said uh, Craig who? It's Bur uh, Burko, I believe. Okay. He's, uh, wait, I want to look, I want to make sure I get it right because I'd hate to get it wrong, Craig. So you're, you're not covering movies and you're a big fan. That's pretty sweet. I do do a little bit of entertainment stuff. It's one of the reasons I went to um, 
uh, I went to com- uh, Comic-Con. Yes. You know, so I will do, or I've even done a couple of, um, a couple of uh, red carpet events. You know, partly because uh, I'm good at... Um, well, I imagine you're photogenic. I'm sure that's the big reason. No, no, it's not that. It's really about it's really about because I can deliver information through social media in a way that makes it interesting. So I went to one 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 red carpet event and turned the walk down the red carpet into a vine and said, "This is what it's like to walk the red carpet at this movie." And you know, it's just a neat way of telling a story. Um, so so I do cover on occasion entertainment focused stuff. Uh, which is one of the benefits of working here because, you know, had I still been at Mashable, not Mashable, at PC Mag, obviously I probably wouldn't have been doing that. Uh, and you guys actually said the Mashies. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, and that focuses on marketing, digital marketing, uh, you know, companies that are doing, you know, kind of what we've been talking about, using uh, digital and social in smart ways to, to um, create brand identity and deliver messages. That's cool. Okay. Well, in the interest of, of your time, I would love to just ask one final question. And that would be, um, I imagine you, you meet a lot of journalism students or people, you know, that are starting out in the industry. And what are, what are some pearls of wisdom that you, you tell them as far as like how to get into writing for a living? Hmm. Well, I did just talk to a bunch of journalism students. We were actually talking about data journalism. Um, I think that it's, Journalism has kind of changed. Uh, I worry about uh, young people who go to schools where they're still teaching journalism as if it were 1985 or even 95 and, and not taking into account the, the, the absolute uh, need for journalists to know about many different kinds of storytelling methods. So I usually say be flexible, be fearless, be really good writers. Um, have tremendous energy, uh, be smart, be accurate. Uh, it's all this. It's the same stuff, but with being open to telling stories in unique ways. So uh, it's not just about tell; it's about show, uh, and it's you know can be about the speed of doing that. Breaking into it is tough. People ask me that all the time, and it's really just about doing it. It's, you know, it's sometimes the great thing about the world today is that you have all these platforms where you, you can have a voice immediately. People won't always be paying attention, but then you have to start to define yourself and then set yourself apart. So you could start a Tumblr and just keep posting to it and people will, may start to notice. Uh, uh, there are a lot of people who've built entire careers uh, just by starting small on one of the platforms. You can do a YouTube show, easy. You know, I'm not saying it'll be great in the beginning, but no one's stopping. Right. You, you That's can, the crazy thing. No yeah. one's stopping you from getting your word out anymore. There's I, nothing I, that can't stop you. I love it. Yeah, I have a weekly podcast, and I'm recording via Skype, so I love it, yeah. And what's, uh, I guess, one, one thing we could look forward to on Mashable that's coming up that you're really fired up for? Oh, we're doing a tremendous amount of year-end stuff now, both wrapping up the year and looking forward to 2015. A lot of cool stuff like that. So that's um, that's happening right now, um, and uh, then we'll be heading into we'll be heading into January with CES, where we'll do the full court press and do a lot of crazy and interesting coverage. Cool. Okay. Well, this is-
Sure.